You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hi, this is Amanda, and you're listening to the Art of History podcast. Welcome to the show, everyone. Our story this week features some infighting French revolutionaries, a girl boss with a deadly agenda, and a simple man who liked to work from his bathtub. If you're new here or you just need a refresh since this is only my second episode, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. I will let you know what that's going to be this week in just a minute. I will also post this week's artwork over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow. It will only save you time in the future. I'll guide us through a look at the piece together, and then we'll explore the bigger picture behind it. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to looking at the painting that is the center of this week's story. It's The Death of Marat by Jacques-Louis David. If you're looking up the image on Google, Marat is spelled M-A-R-A-T, and the artist's name David is spelled just like the name David. And as I mentioned, you can also hop over to Instagram and look for the post labeled episode two. So what are we looking at here? The lower half of this painting, which in real life is about five and a half feet tall, is dominated by a man slumped to the side while sitting in a bathtub. His lower body is obscured by a green sheet or blanket covering a piece of wood, which the man appears to have recently been using as a desk. Beneath this, we get a glimpse of blood-red bathwater. That's our first indicator that this is not a relaxing bubble bath at the end of the day, but rather the aftermath of something much darker. The man himself is pale, and seems even more so because of the contrast between his skin and the plain, dark background. The empty space of that background takes up the entire top half of the painting, creating an empty void. The man's head is thrown back, and he is unclothed, except for a towel that he wears wrapped around his head like a turban. Beneath it, his face has this serene expression on it. A glance at his chest, though, reveals a small wound there. He clings to a note in his left hand, which rests on the desk. His right hand, which dangles lifelessly towards the floor, holds a white feather pen. The knife, which has presumably inflicted this injury, is lying to the man's right on the floor, deep in the shadows cast by his body. It's easy to miss, but the ivory handle of the blade mimics the shape of that feather pen just inches away in the man's hand. Between us and his tub sits a wooden crate, atop which are some other scraps of paper and an inkwell. The crate itself identifies the man lying dead in his bath as Marat, and it bears the artist's signature as well, simply David. 
The overall effect of the painting is a direct, unflinching depiction of a man in his last moments of life. The image's clarity and sharpness make it hard to look away. It's evident that the artist wants us to see what happened here and to understand why it happened. To achieve this, the artist, Jacques-Louis David, painted the scene in the neoclassical art style. Painters working in this style made use of the idealized forms of classical art, so think ancient Greek and Roman sculptures. However, neoclassical works of the late 1700s and early 1800s often featured contemporary events and subjects rather than just stories from the past. David favored this neoclassical style because it was a direct contrast to the style favored by the French royals at the time, what is known as the Rococo. You could probably pick out a Rococo painting fairly easily. They're very pastel, usually featuring beautiful young noblemen and women, relaxing in nature or surrounded by finery. They tend to wear a lot of bows in these paintings and have that quintessential powdered hairstyle. These paintings are so embellished that they almost look, I don't know, I always think of the word frothy. <laughs> They're over the top and they completely reflect the tastes of the upper class living at the court of Versailles. But in contrast, the death of Marat and other neoclassical paintings instead feature crisp lines, dark moody colors, and perfectly balanced compositions. Marat and his bathtub form a horizontal line across our painting, which offsets the scene's empty backdrop. This minimalistic arrangement gives the painting the air of a stage play, and thinking about it in these terms makes the other objects in the frame begin to look like strategically placed props. The sense that we are watching a dramatic recreation of Marat's final moments is further exaggerated by the lighting that David, the artist, has created. It looks as though a spotlight is illuminating the lead actor during his big scene. The Death of Marat was painted in 1793, four years after the start of the French Revolution. And the revolution is where our story today will ultimately end, but first, let's get acquainted with our painting's subject. Jean-Paul Marat, the man in the bathtub, was born in 1743 to a Sardinian man of Spanish descent named Jean Salvador Marat with no T on the end. Jean, his father, is described as well-educated, but he was unable to ever secure a steady job. In his 30s, he moved from Sardinia to Geneva, where he met his wife, a French Protestant woman named Louise Cabrol. Jean hoped to land a coveted teaching position in a secondary school to support the growing family, but potential employers viewed him as an outsider and barred him from ever entering the education system. He instead moved his family to a small Prussian principality and eked out a living there as a private tutor. Still, Jean-Paul would later credit his father for instilling in him a love of learning and his mother for bestowing him with a strong sense of morality and a social conscience. The young Jean-Paul left the family's home in Prussia at 16, aiming to get an education in France. It was at this time that he francicized his last name by adding the T at the end, so from now on, I'm going to refer to him as Marat. I can imagine that witnessing his father struggle to overcome that label of outsider would have led Marat to try and ingratiate himself with his adopted country right from the start. But Marat didn't really seem to know what he wanted to do with himself in France. 
He first applied to be part of an expedition to Siberia to observe the transit of Venus across the sun with a famous French astronomer, but he was turned down. Instead of venturing out as an astronomer, Marat moved to Bordeaux and then Paris, where he studied medicine. He never gained any formal credentials, but still set up his own medical practice. You could apparently do that sort of thing in the 18th century. In 1765, he moved to London due to a fear of being drawn into, quote, dissipation in France. Speaking as someone who also studied in France, I can confirm this is one of the dangers of French living. Marat worked informally as a physician while in England, but he also began to insert himself into intellectual and artistic circles as a way for compensating for his lack of any formal qualifications or patronage from a wealthy benefactor. Marat would remain in England until 1776, during which time he began publishing scientific, philosophical, and political writings. The first of those on the political side was called Chains of Slavery, a work wherein the clandestine and villainous attempts of princes to ruin liberty are pointed out. This is exactly as it sounds. It is a condemnation of parts of the English constitution and the king's power that Marat viewed as corrupt. It's a foundational work for him, and echoes of the ideas that he puts forth in Chains of Slavery can eventually be found in all of his later political writings. For example, he advocates for representatives who can only enact legislation with the approval of the people they represent, rather than some dishonorable aristocratic ruling class ruling on the basis of their birth alone. Marat completed Chains of Slavery after, in his own words, living on black coffee for three months and sleeping two hours a night. After finishing the work, he wrote that he slept soundly for 13 days in a row. That same year, 1776, Marat returned to France for good, where his reputation as a physician now preceded him. There, his clientele included Parisian high society and Charles Philippe, the Comte d'Artois, the youngest brother of King Louis XVI. By this time, Marat finally procured an official MD from the University of St. Andrews. He had been awarded this after writing two essays about curing a friend's gonorrhea. All of this personal success should have been fulfilling for Marat, who was always conscious of his own outsider status, but he never managed to gain the approval of the French Royal Academy of Sciences, an affront that he carried with him for the rest of his life. By late 1788, Marat was also conducting scientific research and doing this full-time, and he became more and more politically radical as he continued his political writings on the side. Until, that is, he fell deathly ill. Scientists are still studying the underlying cause of Marat's chronic bouts of illness, but we do know that he suffered a period of debilitating exhaustion at this time. Apparently, as Marat wrote in his diary, the thing that cured him of this particular illness was the announcement that King Louis XVI was going to assemble the Estates General, a sort of congress of the three social classes of French society, for the first time in 175 years. Upon hearing of the king's decision, Marat declared that, quote, the news had a powerful effect on me, my illness suddenly broke, and my spirits revived. This marks the beginning of what we now know as the French Revolution, and Marat wanted to contribute his political and philosophical ideas to the events that would soon unfold. The Estates General, the body that Louis XVI assembled, had no true power but was supposed to act more as an advisory body to the king. 
In theory, the first estate representing about 100,000 church officials, the second estate representing 400,000 nobles, and the third estate representing about 25 million commoners were supposed to debate the nation's finances and the current taxation situation. And while the estates were each of vastly differing sizes, they each carried the same weight in that decision-making process. This practice was no longer going to fly for the third estate, who voted amongst themselves to form the National Assembly, which intended to govern by the will of the people. Louis XVI attempted to shut this whole thing down by closing the official assembly hall, but the new National Assembly simply moved to a nearby tennis court and swore in what is aptly called the Tennis Court Oath not to disband until they had given France a new constitution. Marat, inspired by this budding political movement, swapped out his scientific instruments for a pen as he abandoned his careers in medicine and research and instead began writing on behalf of the Third Estate. I'm going to take a little break, and when I come back, we'll talk about Marat's life and death during the French Revolution. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And we're back, and we are about to get knee-deep in the French Revolution. When we talk about the revolution, we are looking at the time period from 1789 until roughly 1799. At this point, I will let you know that there are a lot of different things going on here, and this is in no way going to be an exhaustive description of the revolution or the key players involved. 
If you're interested in a very detailed look at the French Revolution, though, I recommend you check out Mike Duncan's podcast, Revolutions. Season 3 covers the French Revolution from the assembly of the Estates General all the way through to the rise of Napoleon. But if you don't have time for 54 episodes right now, here's a quick summary. By the 1780s, the general population of France, which, remember, comprised some 25 million people, mostly farmers, peasants, and poor workers of the cities, was burdened with the bulk of the responsibility for paying the nation's taxes, even as they controlled the least amount of wealth. The clergy was exempt from paying any taxes, and the nobles had gamed the system for so long that they were virtually tax-exempt as well. Is this sounding eerily familiar to anyone? Frustrated by this discrepancy between the wealth of the first two estates and the insane rate that the third estate was expected to contribute while being underpaid and overworked, they found ways to rebel against the monarchy and demand structural change. By the way, that wealth gap between the top 1% and the rest of the population, today ours is greater than it ever was during the French Revolution. Just thought I'd put that out there. The French king and his wife, Marie Antoinette, were deposed in September 92 and were executed early the next year. The monarchy was replaced with the First French Republic, although political power grabs and infighting within that new republic would continue for several more years. This is where we get to a thing called the Reign of Terror, which saw more than 16,000 French citizens executed, mostly by guillotine, for being alleged, quote, counter-revolutionaries. The result of an uprising in Paris that placed Maximilien Robespierre and his Committee of Public Safety at the power center of the political scene, La Terreur, as it was known, lasted for about a year. All of these revolutionary ideas, and ironically, the reign of terror itself, were heavily shaped by something else that had been going on during the 1700s, the Enlightenment, an intellectual movement that emphasized individualism and rational thinking. During this time, philosophers and writers had flocked to Paris, where they discussed ways to challenge the very foundations of society. Their ideas gained traction as these philosophers distributed their ideas in the forms of pamphlets, books, and newspapers. Revolutionaries would ultimately co-opt many aspects of the Enlightenment, including the use of the media to share their ideas. This is where we will meet back up with our friend Marat. In 1789, Marat founded a newspaper called L'Ami du Peuple, or The Friend of the People, to advocate for the rights of the lower classes and denounce anyone he deemed an opponent of the cause. And he would call them out by name. In one issue, he threatened to tear out the heart of the Marquis de Lafayette, burn King Louis XVI, and, quote, impale the deputies of the assembly upon their seats. Even other revolutionaries could become targets of Marat's condemnations. Remember how I mentioned that there was some infighting? Marat aligned himself early on with the Jacobins, who were probably the most radical political party to gain power during the revolution. Eventually, he would become the leader of the Jacobins, a position that he used to criticize the Girondins, a more moderate revolutionary group that had enjoyed the political majority from the beginnings of the First Republic. It had been the Girondins, for example, who thought that the king should not have been executed, while the Jacobins argued that it was necessary to kill him and his wife in order to assure the revolution's success. 
As we know, the Jacobins ultimately won that fight and political power along with it. Marat's words and high visibility are credited with directly inciting several key moments in the revolution, and he became a hero of the Parisian working class. He even began to dress and act like them, wearing dramatic robes, headscarves, and open shirts, and behaving in a, quote, uncouth manner in public. He adopted this persona from the working people to show that he was one of them, but it was all an act. Behind closed doors, Marat was not actually a strong proponent of democracy. He once wrote of the French people that it is not of old slaves that free citizens are made. In other words, quote, these people are not educated and nothing is so difficult as to educate them. He had no true interest in bolstering the knowledge or ability of the general population, but he still wanted the public to see him as a crusader for truth and social justice. As expected, Marat's conspicuousness and his criticism of people on all sides made him a major target. In 1790, he narrowly escaped arrest, and on several occasions over the next few years, Marat was forced into hiding in Paris's sewers. We can tell when he was on the run due to gaps in the normally daily printing of his newspaper. While not in hiding, though, Marat did a lot of his work while in his bathtub. His workstation was famously exactly as it appears in David's painting, so now might be a good time to pull that up for another look. Why did Marat love bathing so much? Well, he had a skin condition that caused him to itch constantly, and his only relief came while he was immersed in a medicinal bath. He also wore a towel wrapped turban-like around his head after being soaked in vinegar to reduce the discomfort on his scalp. While using his bathroom as an office, Marat wrote letters and long lists of suspects to be tried and executed. He didn't do this as part of any official position within the Republic, mind you, but he still held influence as a member of radical society. As Marat was working on July 13th, 1793, his wife, Simone Evrard, informed him that he had a visitor named Charlotte Corday. Corday was a young Girondin sympathizer who came from a lower-class royalist family in Normandy. She was pretty well-educated, having become familiar with Enlightenment authors such as Voltaire and Rousseau in her childhood. Later in life, she had become radicalized by listening to Girondin speeches, advocating for slowing the revolution and stopping the wave of violence that the Jacobins were inflicting. She came to share their skepticism about the radical direction that the revolution was heading in, so she set her sights on the most radical political actor of them all, Jean-Paul Marat. To gain a meeting with Marat, Corday had claimed to have information about a group of fugitive Girondins in Normandy. Unable to resist this juicy offering, Marat invited the stranger in and asked her to sit by his bath, against his wife's wishes, I will add, so that he could write down the names of the accused. Their meeting lasted for about 15 minutes, during which time she rattled off a list of Girondins who had escaped so that Marat could have them hunted down, tried, and sentenced. Corday claimed later that Marat told her, quote, their heads will fall within a fortnight. At the end of their conversation, Corday calmly got up, took a five-inch kitchen knife from her corset, and plunged it into Marat's chest, where it sliced through an artery close to his heart. Marat's last words were not filled with revolutionary fervor, but in his last seconds he called out to Simone, help me, my beloved. 
it only took him a few moments to bleed out right there in his bath. Corday then hid within the Marat home, where she was eventually found and arrested. Her trial lasted four days, during which time she testified that she had carried out the assassination entirely alone and boldly declared that she had, quote, killed one man to save 100,000. On July 17th, Charlotte Corday was guillotined for the death of Marat. Although she was almost certainly acting alone, Corday's actions kicked off a wave of violence against counter-revolutionaries and royalists. The murder may have also led to the banning of women's political clubs in France. And while the death of Marat was not the only cause of the reign of terror, it definitely contributed to the paranoia from which it sprang. In the immediate wake of Marat's death, though, there was other work to be done. As both a close friend of Marat and a fellow Jacobin, the artist Jacques-Louis David was given two tasks, plan his friend's funeral and paint his death scene. David himself was politically active as well. He had voted for the death of the king and served on Marat's Committee of General Security, where he had helped to try and sentence many suspected counter-revolutionaries. He was in a prime position to leverage his friend's death in order to advance their shared political beliefs. One problem as David set out to draft the painting, though, was the intense summer heat, which had accelerated the decomposition of Marat's body. This may have contributed to David's choice to idealize Marat and his death scene, rather than depict it with any degree of accuracy. In the painting, he does not, for example, show us Marat's chronic skin condition, which was the whole reason that he spent so much time in the bathtub. Instead, we are given an image of a spotless victim. David also tactfully chose not to paint Charlotte Corday's knife embedded in Marat's chest, where she had actually left it before hiding. Instead, he paints it on the floor, where it doesn't get in the way of our view of the martyr in the making. Some of the other details in the painting are true to life, but the notes we can see have been completely fabricated, such as the one that Marat holds in his left hand. This reads, July 13th, 1793, Marianne Charlotte Corday to Citizen Marat. Because I am unhappy, I have the right to call on your goodwill. This exact letter, as far as we know, never existed, but David includes it anyway in order to create the illusion that Marat was full of goodwill for the public and had welcomed his assassin into his home. David also invented a second letter, which can be seen sitting atop the wooden crate beside the tub. This one shows that in his last moments, Marat had apparently ordered money to be sent to a war widow and a mother of five, whose husband had sacrificed his life for the revolution. Again, this letter did not exist, but David places it among these other true-to-life details in order to spin the narrative right before our eyes. The only piece of writing in the frame that likely was real is the list of names to be investigated. Nevertheless, all of this detail is meant to add to the sense of realism. David finished the death of Marat just months after the event took place, while it was still fresh in the public's collective memory. This immediacy wasn't especially commonplace for an artist up to this point. Painters instead tended to look to history for inspiration. David opting to depict major events of his own time led him to kind of spearhead that new neoclassical movement that we mentioned before. 
David felt that depicting contemporary, quote, noble events like the death of Marat in this style, mimicking images of ancient Greece and Rome, would help to instill knowledge, patriotism, and civic virtue in the French population after the revolution. It was all about stirring up emotions and awakening consciousness to support the cause. And the death of Marat doesn't just draw on that classical style to get David's point across. It also draws on depictions of a dead Jesus Christ from across art history, particularly in Marat's bathtub pose. David is specifically drawing inspiration here from Michelangelo's Christ figure in the famed Pietà sculpture, giving us an impression of the revolutionary as a martyr, who, like Jesus, loved the people, hated kings, and never stopped fighting against injustice. So not only is David appealing to his audience's sense of civic pride, but he's also using the painting as a kind of religious experience, almost like an altarpiece, honoring Marat as a saint for the, quote, religion of the new French Republic. Because of these many symbolic elements, the death of Marat was immediately very popular with revolutionaries. The demand to make use of the painting was so high that David's pupils produced several copies to distribute as propaganda. However, after the fall and execution of Marat's good friend Robespierre, the painting fell out of fashion and was returned to David. The artist himself would go into hiding as the revolution wound down, emerging again later to paint under Emperor Napoleon. In the middle of the 19th century, the painting re-emerged from obscurity in Brussels and landed a place in the collection of the Royal Museum of Fine Arts there, where it has remained ever since. A version of the painting, though, that was completed by David's workshop also resides at the Louvre in Paris. In the 20th century, the death of Marat became a curiosity once again, but this time for artists like Pablo Picasso, who riffed off of David's work in a piece that he related to his own tangled love life rather than any political movement. There are also other paintings from history that show us different angles of the death of Marat. One of these, titled Charlotte Corday by Paul-Jacques-Amey Baudry, relegates Marat himself and his bathtub to a lower corner, and instead places the focus and the role of hero on Corday herself. By 1860, when this painting was completed, Marat's image had evolved into one of an angry militant radical, hungry for vengeance, and Corday was seen as a role model for young, virtuous, moderate citizens. Just goes to show you that when it comes to history, it really does matter who tells your story. I hope you enjoyed that meandering walk through the life, death, and afterlife of a revolutionary figurehead. As I mentioned before, there are so many pieces to untangle when it comes to the French Revolution, and I imagine that we'll revisit it from some other angle in a future podcast episode. But I do encourage you to seek out more info if I have piqued your interest, whether that's to do with the gruesomeness of the Reign of Terror or the doomed yet glamorous life of Queen Marie Antoinette. There are a lot of ways to approach this span of history. I'd also encourage you to check out the rest of Jacques-Louis David's body of artwork. He kept redefining that neoclassical style well into the first part of the 1800s, and it's all really enjoyable to look at and try to pick apart. A quick note, just so I say it on the record, right now episodes of this podcast are bi-weekly, so every other Friday you will get a new history story. 
In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about this week's episode, I would love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at Art of History Podcast or now on Twitter at Art Historic Pod. Art of History Podcast was already taken, which I did not know before naming this show. I also continue to make royal history videos over on TikTok at Matta of Fact. That's Matta, M A T T A underscore of underscore fact. Until next time, stay curious and maybe don't go stabbing people you disagree with while they take a bath. Bye, everyone.